Again, welcome. Uh, welcome to Sedaris. Uh, very glad that you're here with us today. I just want to start by talking about one of my favorite phrases, idioms, if you will. When someone says, oh man, you've opened a can of worms. You heard this? This is a great little phrase. And uh, today, I'm going to open a can of worms. Not, not because it's my choice, but because I think that's what the author of this book that we've been reading called The Gospel According to Mark, that's what he does. He just flat out opens a big can of worms, and uh, we're going to see why that is. And it reminds me, when you think of uh, opening a can of worms, which means like, oh my gosh, what's going to come next? It reminds me, uh, I also love movies, you guys know that. Uh, one of my favorite scenes that's played over again and again and again in film and cinema is uh, that moment uh, when you think you've got it under control and then something out of control happens. Let me explain what I'm talking about here. So you tied up the bad guy. Clearly, you've done a great job of tying his legs and his arms to a chair that you, for some reason, put in a room that you don't plan to be in very often. <laughs> and then you leave and you go, you know, make yourself some scrambled eggs. And then you come back and he's gone. And, you, and, and what comes over you? Fear, terror. Uh-oh, I probably should have used more duct tape. You also see this in... Movies that have fences, right? Don't worry, the fence is impenetrable. Nothing can get through it. And then they come back sometime later and there's a giant dinosaur-sized hole in the fence. And then we look around and we say, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? Um, have you seen my pet snake or tarantula? Let me show it to you. Oh, it's not in the terrarium. Uh-oh, better watch out. Oh, this vial of epidemic strength virus. Look at how nice it, oh, breaks on the ground. What are we going to do? Right, again and again and again, we see this played out in a number of ways. Uh, it makes for great film, right? And the reason I think this moment is so memorialized in, in film is because it's such a common, relatable, impressionable feeling. That feeling that you have when you think everything's going the way it should go and then you realize it's not. You realize something new has entered the story. And it's such a relatable, powerful, experiential, existential moment that filmmakers like to put it in their movies. And every time the proverbial can of worms is opened, if the can is big enough, the standard and proper response in that moment is to be afraid. To be afraid. And today we're going to read the very last verses of the Gospel according to Mark. We've been looking at it for, uh, since October. We've been walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this gospel, and then we're going to get to the very end of it, and it ends in a very peculiar manner. In fact, it ends in a way that is so confusing in a sense that the, the scribes who came after it was written decided maybe we had lost the real ending. 
And so they rewrote what they thought would be a proper ending. Because it just ends with a group of women trembling, astonished, and afraid. That's the very last word of the Gospel according to Mark. Afraid. So hopefully by the time I stop talking today, you'll understand why I think Mark ends his Gospel in such a peculiar fashion. There are four Gospels, and Mark is the only one who ends his story without talking about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He doesn't. He just ends it with an empty tomb and a group of women afraid. So if you want to see uh, what happened after that, you can read any of the other four Gospels, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Luke, or John, and you can see some of the things that happened after Mark's story ends. But Mark is trying to do something as an author, as a storyteller, that's very important. It's one of the reasons why I love Mark so much is because his Gospel actually ends in the way that we, 2,000 years later, experience the Jesus story. You see, we won't get to see Jesus' body. We won't get to touch him. We don't get to put our hands, or our hands on his hands and feel the holes where the nails were driven through. We don't get that. What we get is to hear somebody tell us that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is risen. We're like the women in this last scene, and I'm excited to talk about that. Uh, so th- for those of you who were not here on Good Friday, uh, let me recap where we, we're coming from when we get to this very last chapter of Mark. Uh, so we remembered and lamented the cross of Christ, and we read through chapters 14 and 15 of the Gospel. And, and, and when we read this, what we learned is... is um, We learned of the betrayal of one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his followers. We learned of his secret arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, of his mock trial by the Jewish religious leaders, of his peculiar trial before the Roman governor Pilate where he was falsely convicted. We learned of his beating, his flogging, his mocking. We learned of him being nailed to a Roman execution instrument known as the cross. We read of his excruciating death and of his hasty burial in a well-to-do sympathizer's tomb just before the sun set and the Sabbath began. And that's where we left off. And all those things, though horrific, really don't make sense of anything special or unique about Jesus. In fact, it's all pretty predictable up to that point. It's quite common for so-called religious revolutionaries to have come onto the scene, to have been killed, and then for their disciples to be dispersed. So Jesus is definitely not the only person to be betrayed by a close friend, to be arrested in secret, to be hurried through an unjust puppet trial conducted by a corrupt, corrupt political group, to be falsely convicted of a crime that he didn't commit, to be beaten, flogged, mocked for no reason, to be nailed to a cross. This was the Romans' favorite way of executing people. And of course, everybody dies eventually. Nothing unique about that. And everybody who dies 
is buried in one way or another, and they spend the rest of time lying with those proverbial worms. And so, what's really so different about Jesus? Why are we here this morning talking about him? Why did his story literally change the world? Well, it's nothing about what happened on Friday. It's what happened next in the story. Because when he breathed his last breath, just like everyone else that's ever lived will do and has done, and he was put in the tomb before sundown, when this group of women came back to finish the burial rituals, what they found was that his body wasn't there. They found the tomb, they found the worms, but one thing was missing. The worms had no breakfast. That's never happened before. And it's never happened since. So here it is. The can of worms is opened as the tomb is shown to be empty. And apparently, Jesus is risen. And that can of worms being opened has changed billions of lives. It's helped cure diseases. It's helped educate the masses. It's reoriented morality and gender and politics for all time. It's the biggest can of worms that's ever been opened. So if you've got a Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 16 and take a look at this can of worms being opened. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the rows, end of the rows. Ask somebody just to pass it down to the middle. You could also look it up on your phone. The Gospel of Mark is about 80% of the way through your Bible. You can use the table of contents. There's no shame in that. And as you're turning there, uh, I I mentioned it just briefly, but what you're going to see is that verse 8 is where I'm going to stop. But then there's verses that come after that. And again, what happened is, because Mark's uh, gospel just ends so abruptly, scribes who would take, they didn't didn't have uh, photocopy machines, they didn't have printing presses, so scribes would come along and rewrite everything that was in Mark's gospel. And as time went on, more and more people thought, well, maybe we lost something in the ending. So maybe we need to look at the other gospels See, what they said happened after the empty tomb and add a little bit so that anybody that's reading the Gospel of Mark can get a fuller picture. And it's pretty much, amongst scholars, uh, it's, it's a pretty large percentage that believe, no, the Gospel of Mark, as it was written by Mark himself, actually stops at verse 8. So that's where we're gonna stop today. So here we go. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, 
do not be alarmed. We seek, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out, fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's the end. That's how Mark ends his gospel. Six months to get to that ending. So what's going on here? Let's take a closer look. Um, When the Sabbath was passed, these three women come back to the tomb. Now the reason um, the church started meeting on Sunday mornings, if you didn't didn't know this, is because of this event. So immediately after this happened and the disciples saw the risen Jesus, they started meeting, not on Saturday, which was, was the traditional Sabbath for Jewish people, but all these Jewish people started meeting on Sunday morning because of this. So when the Sabbath had passed, that meant Sunday morning. These three women come and they brought spices so that they might anoint the body of Jesus. Now these women, these women are legit. These women are incredible women um, who, out of reverence and love for their once rabbi who has now died, they risk something to come back to the tomb because their leader had just been killed for everything that he had been teaching and preaching, and they'd surely been seen with him, and and they come to the tomb anyhow. Notice who's not there. All the men. All the men. Probably because they're scared and hiding for fear of their own lives. But the women are not scared. In fact, nothing about Jesus' death scared them. It made them sad, confused, disappointed as dreams and expectations would have been crushed. But it did not terrify them. They walk confidently back to the tomb. But what they discover, the apparent resurrection of Jesus, will terrify them. And that's so fascinating to me. That their leader can be killed, and that doesn't bother them. I mean, it bothers them, but it doesn't scare them. Because that's pretty normal. In fact, probably something in their, their minds anticipated something like this might happen. Because death is very predictable. It's a thought, it's an idea that they have, have experienced before. And so in some senses they can control that. But a man rising from the dead, that's completely out of left field. So these amazing women come back to the tomb and they become the first eyewitnesses to the can of worms being opened. And and it's hard for us because we live uh, in such a progressive time. But back in this time, the witness in a court of law of women would not have been held much weight. And so one of the really amazing parts of this story and one of the reasons why we should um, expect that this is not made up, that this is actually how it happened, is that if you were making up this story, you wouldn't make women the first ones to find 
the tomb. Because, in many people's eyes, their testimony could not be trusted. So this happened. They become the first eyewitnesses. And they come expecting to see Jesus dead. Um, So why did they come to the tomb? What compels somebody to come to the tomb after, after such a tragic, emotional, almost probably overwhelming experience? Well, I think the reason they came back to the tomb is the same reason that many of us come to church on Easter. Um, Sometimes people, maybe, maybe this is you, we only come to church really once a year. And I think this is the same motivations that probably propel us to do this are those that propelled the women, which is when a close friend or acquaintance, somebody that you have great familiarity with, dies, you want to come and pay your respects to them because you're familiar with them. They probably also came because his teach, teaching was luminary and they wanted to acknowledge that he had helped them to be a better person. And finally, it's what you do for dead people. To remember them properly, you would come and for them, anoint the body to prepare it for sort of eternal slumber, and that's what you do. And maybe for some of you, you come to church on Easter because that's what you do. That's just what people from your tradition do. Now, we're very glad that you're here. But even though these women came for one reason, what we realize is that they left with a completely different understanding. And that's exactly what I hope happens for some of you here today that haven't been to church for a while, that you came for good reasons, but you leave with a totally new understanding of what this day means. This is the pattern that happens again and again and has been happening century after century after century, is that intelligent, brilliant, even Jesus-level human beings, we'll talk about one of them in a a minute here, from every nationality, ethnicity, religious background, personality type, come to this sort of memorial service of Jesus with one idea in their head and often leave having discovered that the body's not there. And we get to see this played out for the very first time right here in Mark chapter 16. And it always goes this way. When this can of worm is opened, when you actually see for the first time that the tomb is empty, it gets a whole lot scarier before it starts to feel freeing. It gets a whole lot scarier first. Um, I don't really like to uh, promote Christian film all that much because sometimes it's not very good, but I actually watched um, the film version of a book that was written called The Case for Christ, And it's on Netflix, and it tells a great story about a man who went through this experience. He went trying to disprove uh, that the tomb was empty, and he left realizing, oh my goodness, it actually is empty, and it changed his life. And so if you want, it's actually a pretty well-made movie. Um, If you wanted to watch that, I, uh, I watched it the other day, and I was pleasantly surprised. 
So look here with me at verse 3. So they come to the tomb, not because they think they'll find the risen Jesus, but because they're just paying their respects, doing what they should do. And they say to one another, verse 3, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, for it was very large. Again, a sign that they hadn't put a ton of thought into this. They were just sort of going through what they thought were the right motions. Maybe they'd ask some of the male disciples to come help them, and again, they dropped the ball. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Whenever we see the same language in Scripture, it's always referring to an angel. So this is actually in reference, there's an angel dressed in white, radiant white, sitting next to where the body of Jesus lay. And of course they were alarmed. And the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. Uh, Easy for you to say, angel, (laughs) but we've never seen anything like this. And the angel said to them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, now where he would probably be pointing to, there was probably some linens there that Jesus had been wrapped in, his body had been wrapped in as they hastily prepared his body to be put in the tomb the night before. And so we know from the other Gospels that those linens were sitting there, probably uh, soaked in blood. There's probably blood stains on the stone uh, in this tomb that they were able to walk into. And the angel continues, verse 7, and says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him, just as he told you. Now imagine at this point, um, all the things Jesus had taught them and said to them and predicted to them were sort of flashing into their mind. Jesus, we know from Mark's Gospel, at least three times predicted that he had to go to Jerusalem to die and then rise again. But they didn't really understand what he was saying. They actually thought he was speaking more metaphorically. But they're probably recounting all of those things and they're starting to say, what if this actually happened? Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Very intense scene here. Almost impossible to put us into that moment. But we know that these women eventually did go tell the disciples. So when it says that they told no one, it probably means from the grave site to the room where the disciples were hiding out, sheepishly. Um, They didn't tell anybody. They were too scared to tell anybody that they encountered in the streets. But they do eventually go and tell the disciples, which we know because we have this story (laughs) and other Gospels tell us that they did. They couldn't make sense of it, though. And trembling seized them. I imagine we'd do the same thing if the biggest can of worms that's ever been opened was opened before our eyes. A man who we had watched die, whom we had seen a spear pierce his side and blood and water had gushed out, was now apparently alive. I looked up this week what the term 
open a can of worms actually means and where it originated. And in fact, it literally means to open a can of worms, believe it or not. And uh, it's in reference to, to, to fishermen. And so um, it, was, it came onto the scene before we had all these fancy, you know, plastic lures and things like that. Uh, and people used real live creepy, crawly things, including worms. And so the, the, the fishing stores would sell a can of worms in a real tin can. And so once you opened the can, you couldn't really put the lid back on. But once that can was opened, those worms didn't really like to stay in the can. Now the great thing about live bait is that it's alive. So it wiggles for you when you throw it out there. And you wait. It does all the work. The bad thing about live bait is it's also alive. Which means it has a mind of its own. And given the opportunity, they will escape, crawl into your clothes, and appear the next morning on your pillow. Look it up. Why the resurrection of Jesus is such a big deal and such a big problem is because the body is gone, but the body is also alive. And living things, when they get loose, can be a legitimate problem. Especially when those living things literally have the power over life and death. That's why Jesus' resurrection should scare us, too. He's apparently still alive. And so we don't have to just deal with historical figure. We have to deal with a living person who has the power over death. So why don't all people react like these women did correctly? Why aren't more people afraid when they hear the gospel story? When they hear that a man is apparently still living a man who predicted his own death and resurrection. A man who performed many miracles. A man who many, billions of people over the centuries have claimed to know is still alive through a spiritual relationship with him. If it's not clear yet, I think more people should be a little afraid when they hear the gospel story. I think it's the appropriate response to hearing that Jesus might not be dead. But here, it seems, are a few popular reasons, responses that people have when they learn that the tomb is empty. One, they could have trembling, astonishment, and fear for the rest of their lives. Two, trembling, astonishment, and temporary fear, which is relieved when an investigation determines that the resurrection did, in fact, happen. Three, trembling, astonishment, temporary fear, which is relieved when an investigation determines that the resurrection didn't happen. Four, trembling, astonishment, temporary fear, which is relieved by burying your head in the sand because you're too afraid of finding out that it might be true. And I guess there's one more option, which is never trembling at all because you trust that somebody else trembled before you and this is a credible source that has investigated and found out that it's for sure not true 
But I don't actually think that's a real option because if you study long enough, you know that no one has ever disproven without a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection did not happen. So that leaves option one, which I'm going to skip because nobody wants to live the rest of their life fearing and trembling. And if you do, come talk to me after. I'll talk you out of that. That's no way to live. And then I'm going to combine options three, four, and five because history has uncovered, again, that no evidence has disproved the resurrection. People have come, tried and come up short regardless of how confident they may be, but nothing has actually disproven the resurrection. And that leaves us with two options that I want to look at. The first option is the option that the women took. Astonishment and trembling and temporary fear that eventually was relieved because they found out that Jesus was in fact alive. And so the the angel says to them, this is sort of the crux of this final crescendo, he says, do not be alarmed because Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, has now risen. And the verb here in this sentence, alarmed, is actually in the passive voice, which is to say that this fear cannot actually be avoided because it's something that happens to you and to anybody that hears that a man rose from the dead. But then, it's an imperative spoken by the angels that says, do not be alarmed. So I have this thing that happens to me when I hear this, and I get, I get very afraid. There might be someone who's conquered the grave. But then I have a choice to make where I can go find out if it's actually true. And that's what the angel tells them to do. Verse 7, he says, But go, tell his disciples that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. If Jesus is alive, it means that we can confirm this fact, that he's living, that we can have a real living relationship with him, and we do not have to be controlled by fear. We do not have to be forever alarmed. But it requires movement. I mean, think back to those great movies I mentioned at the beginning, right? There's always somebody that does it right and somebody that does it wrong. When uh, the dinosaur breaks through the fence, there's always the one that hides huddled up in a corner, just hoping, hoping, hoping that the dinosaur doesn't find him. And what always happens? Every time I watch this movie, it happens the same way. The dinosaurs always smell him out. But... There are those heroes of the story that don't wait for the fear to find them. They go and find the fear itself. That's what we need to do. The women go and they find the risen Jesus and then when they see him, they choose to trust him with their whole life. And this is the first option. To find out that he's actually risen and then to choose to trust Him in every area of your existence. With your identity, with your relationships, you trust Him with your career and your finances, you trust Him with your time and your experiences, you trust Him for everything that has value, you trust Him for the future, for this life, and in death. 
I've made this choice in my own life. And what was once trembling and fear is now transformed into hope and love and peace because I know the risen one. And Jesus promises that when you attach yourself to him through trusting him, that you now have access to the same power and authority that rose him from the grave. That's a great promise. And I've experienced it in my own life. doesn't mean that things won't come that are incredibly hard. It doesn't mean that death won't touch you or your family or those you love. But it means that you can have confidence that Jesus has the power and gives you the power to know that that's not the end of the story. I love these women. These are amazing women. Fear has seized them, but they still go and take his message and the reality of his resurrection to those who have not yet heard it. That's the call to anybody in here who knows Jesus and is trusting Jesus, even when it feels like trembling and fear, you just have to go and share the truth that you've met a living Savior named Jesus. The other options go something like this. You've heard of the resurrection of Jesus. You realize that it's a terrifying possibility that a man who claimed to be God predicted his own death and resurrection, performed many other signs and wonders, is now apparently alive and has conquered death. You realize, you tremble rightly. But it's still so hard to believe that he actually did because no one's ever done this. It's easy for the women at the tomb to know because they get to see him firsthand. I never get to see him. I never get to touch his hands. I have to believe without getting to feel, touch, see. So how can I know with any certainty? In light of this, it can seem like a really good idea to simply relieve the trembling and the fear that should come by trying to forget that you ever heard this story in the first place. And you can do this by deeply researching the story until you find what you think to be credible, good evidence to refute the resurrection accounts. Or you can convince yourself that somebody else has already done it. We've talked about those options before. And you can ignore it as a myth. Or you can keep yourself busy, distracted with many of life's distractions, your career, your education, raising your children, travel, philanthropy, to name some of the positive distractions in this world. Or you can do it with drugs, alcohol, partying, sex outside of marriage, to name a few of the negative distractions that we all can choose. And all the while, keep telling yourself that you'll come back to this question, if need be, later in your life. That's a very common common way of dealing with the trembling. But should you do this? I obviously think no, that it's not a smart idea. Um, but I'm not the first one to say that. In fact, there was a man, this is the genius that I was wanting to tell you about earlier. His name's Blaise Pascal. What a great name. He's French. Blaise Pascal has a famous 
Oh, he's a famous man. He is a mathematician. He's a scientist. He invented game theory. He invented the calculator. Uh, he created, designed, and manufactured the first trolley car in Paris, and he lived in the 1500s. An incredible Renaissance man, and he has a very famous argument known as Pascal's Wager. And Pascal said, said this. He's talking about the infiniteness of God and the finiteness of man. And he said, in some sense, we can never know for certain what God is because we are just finite and He is infinite. God is not bound by time or space or sequence like we are. And so in some real sense, we cannot fully comprehend Him by reason alone. But he says, God is either there or He is not there. Pascal says, reason cannot make you choose either. Reason cannot prove either wrong. And so what he does is he sets up what you might call a gambler's wager. And what he'll say, because either way you can't fully prove it, one way or the other, you make a wager. And the wager goes something like this. If God does exist, if the infinite exists, and the possibility that we could have infinite blessing in life eternal with God is possible, then it makes very good sense to wager on that end even though we can't know it for sure. Because what would we give up? We'd give up finite potential gratification potential pleasure in this life. Now Pascal will go on to say later in this same argument that even though if you choose living for God, you'll get really great things thrown in. Things like honesty, humility, gratefulness. Your life will be full of good works. You'll be a sincere and true friend for these are the things that Jesus teaches. And if it turns out it's not true, you will have given up some of the more luxurious pleasures of life, self-glory, maybe fame, to name a few other things. And so Pascal's point is, he says, imagine flipping a coin. Heads, God exists. Tails, God doesn't exist. Heads leads to eternal joys, while choosing tails allows you certain earthly pleasures. Now some people will say, writes Pascal, why must I choose heads or tails? And he replies, all choose one, either by conscious choice or by default. You can't avoid choosing. If you don't choose, you're de facto choosing tails that God does not exist. Now you may have heard this argument before. Maybe you haven't. And you maybe are thinking right now, well that seems a very shallow, hollow way to believe. And maybe you're even thinking, this is how many Christians do believe. They're just sort of closing their eyes and making a bet. And this is one of the ways that Pascal's wager has been misunderstood. Because if you read all the way to the end of the wager, what Pascal will actually go on to say is this. Because the, the, the potential benefits are so large compared to the potential losses... He doesn't say that in itself equates faith in God. What he says is, for the thinking, logical, reasonable person, it makes sense to do whatever it takes in order to determine whether or not this God exists. To take actionable measures to find out for certain 
that he doesn't exist. And so he says, here are some of the possible ways that you can give Christianity a fair shake in order to have confidence that you're not making a foolish wager. He says, try living as a Christian. Maybe for a year. Maybe for two years. Even if you're not one yet. Come to church regularly. Read your Bible consistently. Try living based on Jesus' teaching. Even try singing aloud to worship hymns. And even try praying to God to see if anyone answers. He says all those things, though they take sacrifice and commitment and they'll take time away from other things, the math just adds up. It's worth the risk. It's worth the wager. And this is actually uh, what sort of wed my heart to Pascal's heart when I first started reading him in seminary. Because this is actually the exact thing that I had been saying. This is the consider message. This is what we ask people to do. We say, you need to figure this out on your own, but you need to figure this out. You need to consider. And considering doesn't happen by sitting isolated, away from the person of God as He comes through His people, as He comes through His Word, as He comes to the mind. And so you need to do something. The wager impels you to do something to get clarity as to whether or not Christianity is true. Men like Pascal, who himself, as I said, was an incredible intellectual giant of his day, he found, when he pressed in, when he considered deeply the things of God, he found God and he found Jesus to be very much alive. He experienced Him as the risen Son of God. And he wrote inside his coat, he, he, he stitched it in, a memory that he had, he calls it the night of flames, when he experienced the power of the risen Jesus like never before. To remind himself, this is real. I've met Jesus. So this is my simple, profound challenge to you. If you're unsure of the truth of the resurrection, spend significant energy Maybe this year, investing in a genuine and robust consideration of the person and work and resurrection of Jesus. Because I believe that the only way to know with certainty that Jesus either is living or is still dead is to put yourself close enough to experiences, potential experiences of His personal presence. I've experienced it myself. I believe that He's alive. But you'll never know if you continue to keep him at arm's length. So where do I start? Well, tomorrow night, we have a great opportunity to just come close enough to the truths of Christianity to start considering. Come to Alpha if you're interested in investing in this wager. Sacrifice 10 Monday nights. It is a sacrifice. You're going to have to miss the national championship basketball game tomorrow night, which is hard for me, but I'm doing it. You might even have to miss the bachelorette, but you can always record it. This is, this is real stuff, man. 
Now, if this feels sort of selfish to you, like making a wager, like I'm only thinking about my eternal blessings, that's okay. I started dating only thinking about myself. And then I met my wife. And still for a while I only thought about myself. I wonder if she'll be a good wife. She is, by the way. But at some point it changed when I knew my wife so well that I stopped thinking first about me and I started thinking first about her. And that's what will happen even if you selfishly pursue this wager. That at some point when you meet the risen Jesus and you realize that he hung on the cross to die for your sin and that he rose again so that you might have new life and life to the full in him, you'll start thinking about him first in everything that you do and say and are. And it won't feel like a wager anymore. It'll feel like a relationship. Now, for thoroughness sake, if you've been a Christian for a long time and it still feels in your mind like it's a wager, you need to double down. You need to come to Alpha. You need to reinvestigate all those things that you've said you believe if it still feels like a wager because when you spend time with the real, risen, alive Jesus, it will shift. Maybe not right away, but over time. And so if it's been a long time and it still feels like a wager for you, you need to double down. You need to reinvest. And you need to come close to the real Jesus. Don't hide behind the label Christian if it still feels like a wager. Easter, my friends, is rightly a celebration of new life and new joy, but it all started with a well-reasoned trembling. The tomb is empty. The biggest can of worms was opened that first Easter morning. Many have tried, but no one has been able to close it. And so we should start, like these women, with a healthy dose of fear, when we hear that a man who claimed to be God, who died on a Roman cross, is perhaps still living. And if you allow that trembling to be repurposed into swift feet, moving towards the person of Jesus, moving towards the answers to life's biggest questions, that fear can and will, I guarantee you, be transformed into abundant life, into abundant joy that is found in the living, risen Jesus of Nazareth. This is what I want for all of you. To know this is true and to have life. Let's pray. Father God, Heavenly Father, Creator of the heavens and the earth, You promise us that when we seek You, You will not hide from us. That when we find You through the person of Jesus Christ and trust in Him that You will transform our lives and give us new life, eternal life, both now and into the future by Your Spirit. God, for my friends here today that genuinely and honestly seek Your face, would You reveal Yourself to them? Would You explain to their hearts the reality and the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus? Would You let them know deeply in their being that Jesus died for their sins on the cross? And then give them courage to ask You for forgiveness of all sin. And ask You to come into their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
God, we pause now to allow any in this room who want to ask you for forgiveness to do so. God, hear our prayers. God, thank you for sending your son to die. God, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead to confirm that the sacrifice was sufficient, that my sin does not linger, that it does not lead to ultimate death and separation from you, but that when I place it at the feet of Jesus, that you take that sin as far as the east is from the west, that it has no part of my identity moving forward. We pray all these things, these glorious truths, these humble requests in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is still this day very much alive. Amen.